This is an ABC podcast. Coming up, food as memory. Vita Sackville West as garden icon, culture as casualty of war, and a strange three-wheeled car as absurdity. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint, places, spaces, food, gardens and design. And yes, we're, we're back with freshly baked treats. Uh, the full gamut from Paul Bangay's garden design heroine to Colin Bissett's quirky but regal auto classic that's more Mr Bean than Beamer. And sadly to Ukraine and the, the cultural side of genocide. But first, uh, close your eyes and imagine the scent the taste of some food that transports you. I wonder if for you there's a, a certain dish, a, a particular food, something that, that triggers a deep sense memory, takes you back maybe to childhood, maybe to a place, maybe to a time of year, maybe to a, a season, heat of summer. The, the, the cool of coming autumn, that first chill of winter. For my next guest, th- these things connect her to, to heritage, to a sense of family, the world around her as well. Catherine Tamiko Argyle is an, an arts journalist and author, and her new book is part memoir, part recipe collection, which is a beautiful combination, and that is called Meshi, A Personal History of Japanese food. Catherine, welcome. Thank you very much. This is rich territory, isn't it? Food, memory, identity. Uh, I think it's pretty universal. I think most people will have a very strong visceral connection to the food of their childhoods and uh, where they came from. And it's particularly strong for me or anybody else who's been separated from their heritage in one way or another. Well, this this is a, a very typical thing of, of many diasporic people, that it, it is yeah. food is the umbilical connection. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it transcends any sort of intellectual analysis it gets right to the bones i think or to the belly (laughs) (laughs) well like but yes you know and i think it provides such a rich source of uh kind of cross-fertilization in diasporic communities you know where it's Mm. fused with uh, the food of the place of uh, you know the final destination especially in the uk where it hasn't always had the best reputation for good food. So I think immigration has really uplifted British food in particular. Well, I think this is one of the glories of our sort of modern moment um, is that food traditions are are no longer isolated and are cross-pollinating. And we're at this specific point in history where that is producing such richness. Yes, yes, I agree. It's an interesting thing to think about, though, because there are times when I think some cultures quite rightly feel that the food has been appropriated without full understanding. So there's a fine line, I think, between what I like to call authentic fusion and appropriation or incorrect appropriation, really. I saw um, something on sale, I won't name the brand, uh, (laughs) labelled as Japanese stir-fry, and it had turmeric as a sort of superstar ingredient, and turmeric is certainly not used. (laughs) Yeah, that sort of thing, I think, is troubling, because it gives an inaccurate representation of of Japanese food in particular, which is quite a universe unto itself. Well, and and apart from those issues of appropriation, which are real and, and, and need to be respected, there's something, though, about 
the, the more things combine and the more things become hybrids, the more that places importance on the authenticity of the root. If mm. you lose that, everything becomes chaos. I agree with that too. There's no foundation to build that new thing on. I'm so interested in anything that's liminal, that sort of transaction between two completely opposing things to mm. create something new. But both sides have to have an authentic core in order to create some sort of fusion that that's a new, completely new thing. And that applies to so many things. I think it applies actually to our times right now. This huge transition of something that's uh, changing, incoming, and trying to create a completely new paradigm for living. And yes, with food, you know, in Japan particularly, you know, I'm a bit sort of traditional because I left when I was young in terms of living there sort of full time. Uh, the last time I did that was when I was 11. But these days, people cooking in Japan have incorporated all kinds of Western ingredients to traditional turmeric. things. There's a fish. Yeah, to, uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about the turmeric. Uh, but things like cheese in hampen fish cakes, you know, that's a sort of a fairly standard dish that you might have at your evening meal. Well, cheese being quite an exceptional example, is this not the colloquial dismissal of the Westerner as being a cheese eater? <laughs> I think when I was growing up, and this is, you know, giving away my age in the 70s, um, people in Japan were not that used to cheese. There was one brand, I think, from um, Hokkaido where there are a lot of um, dairy cattle. Um, but in terms of the really smelly French cheeses, that just was perceived as something really quite off-putting and rotten. Mm. Um, so taste well, evolved it is. and become more adventurous. <laughs> it is. It's it rotten is. milk. <laughs> Delicious rotten milk, but uh, yeah, a bit of an acquired taste, I think, um, if you haven't grown up with it. Certainly the very stinky ones. Yeah. So why um, was this the moment to, to, to write this book? It followed on my novel, which came out right at the start of the pandemic in 2020, which was fed a great deal by my own experiences of growing up um, mixed race, Japanese and British. And there was a huge emphasis on food, which wasn't consciously written at the time, but I used it as a device to sort of connect two rather estranged people, a mother and a daughter. Hmm. And I am a huge lover of food and especially Japanese food. And so when I was writing these scenes, and I tend to be quite visual and I sort of am there when I'm writing these scenes. I went right back to making um, tonkatsu with my mother, which is a sort of panko <laughs> deep fried pork scallop um, with rice. And a lot of people responded by saying it made them really hungry. And some people even <laughs> looked up the recipes for those things to make them. Yeah, it will. <laughs> made me hungry writing it. And I just felt that I wanted to give my take on what the full depth really of Japanese cuisine, which is really it's what, what we see outside Japan is just an absolutely tiny little scraping of what's available in mm. Japan, mostly because the ingredients aren't available. And coupled with that really was uh, revisiting my childhood, which I'd rather suppressed. I didn't realize until I started writing Meshi just how much I had suppressed. I was quite sort of blasé about having been separated from my country, my native country. And then I think when my mother died back in uh, 1995, it felt as though that was another door closing. Yeah. And I've always kept up 
cooking, my mother's recipes, Japanese recipes in general, using mostly, I still mostly use all her Japanese crockery, which I inherited because I, I didn't have any siblings. Um, and it just felt, you know, the idea came initially to write a very simple collection of funny family anecdotes about food <laughs> because my Japanese family is very foodie and recipes, but it actually turned out to be something a little bit more profound. I think partly inspired by the severity of what was happening in 2020, yes. but also recognizing that I'd actually, you know, maybe there was a need for me to look back again at where I came from and, and my heritage because I felt always as if a half of me was missing. You describe two Japanese words used for food, meshi, which becomes your title, and, and gohan. Mm. Yes. The, the usage of those two, how does that differ? Yeah, well, Japanese is a tremendously layered language, and um, there are certain words that are used by certain strata of society. So men have a different language from women. This is in traditional gendered roles. And meshi is a very masculine word. It's quite rough. It's rustic. It's not a word that you would use, it, you know, it means rice, but it also means meal. And you would never mm. say, I've eaten meshi, if you're a woman, traditionally. It's fine for a man to say it. And it's also used by kind of rural communities, especially the rice growing communities. So rather snobby Tokyo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, you're a, if you're from a traditional family and you're born a girl and you identify as a girl, then you avoid the use of meshi. And it's a, a word of outsiders. And so I felt I wanted to use that rather than gohan, um, just to sort of indicate that sort of outsiderishness of my, my Japanese half. Um, and there is actually quite a funny anecdote. Um, my Japanese cousin, when she was very young, she was about five, had been sent to my grandmother to tell her that lunch was ready upstairs because the whole family lives in a building, one floor above another. She was sent downstairs to my grandmother and said, in Japanese, it's a... Uh, which means, roughly translated, dear grandmother, do come and enjoy the repast that has been prepared for you because dad's already scoffed his nosh. Um, so that's the sort of difference of informality versus formality. <laughs> this is a delightful story. One of the interesting things about, and this is particularly true, I think, of Japanese food, is that it is, it is surrounded culturally. It is, it is not just a simple act of eating. No. Which takes us to this idea of washoku. Yes. How would you describe that? Yes. Well, everything is built around the core of rice. Rice, rice really, you can say, I think some people actually do claim that rice was the foundation of, of the structure of Japanese society, the idea of um, communal kind of cooperation in order to grow rice, which is quite difficult to grow. You need a lot of people one time planting seedlings. So Washoka grew around rice. Um, it's a particular kind of rice, um, urichimai, which is sticky, uh, but a bit different from even from the stuff that's grown in California by first generation Japanese migrants. And there's a huge seasonality around it that mm. almost makes it unacceptable to serve certain things at certain times of year. 
It just seems very strange. And I think also the climate and the environment in Japan, which is so diverse, you can cross one valley and go to a different microclimate. And so ingredients are tremendously localized. And so there are specialties all over Japan called meibutsu, which are even foreign to other people within Japan. And they'll travel just to eat that particular thing. In that and place at that time. In that place. They mm. will travel to do that. And my uncle, who is a real gourmet, um, being, you know, the head of a family food business, you know, we drive for hours to go to one restaurant known for a particular kind of fish, and that's all they'd serve. And I think there's something about the subtlety of flavors, which just, I think, I mean, I guess this does this everywhere, mm. but the way Japanese people respond to food feels so much more intense and visceral. I may be biased, but I think it's true. It is so delicious that it's like a soul food and very much a part of Japanese identity because of the rice and the variety too, um, highly seasonal. And there's a particular type of eating which is kind of connected to chado, the tea ceremony. It's a kaiseki style of eating, which is absolutely beautifully plated in tiny little dishes. It's a multi-course degustation. And everything in that meal, every ingredient, every piece of crockery, even the chopsticks rests, are aligned with that particular season. So there's something very poetic about that connection of food. Um, it is definitely more than nourishment. And my mother always said, if someone Japanese smelled some grilling going on with shoyu, soy sauce, they would immediately make a beeline for it. <laughs> um, and people really struggle if they don't have Japanese rice for lengthy periods. So... Yeah, it just feels important. So if we were to take some of the, the ideas of Washoku in, into, into Australian life, into your own world, how, how would that translate? Hmm. Well, it would require some patience with certain things that are out of season. I think generally, actually, Australia, uh, certainly what I see around me in Adelaide, is not quite as intensely disconnected from season as it is in the UK. Mm. But I think there's the seasonality, but there's also the manner of eating that is shared with some countries like France. Um, and that's the whole idea of the communal sharing of the food and, and communal appreciation of the food. And that's more than just connecting with your natural environment. It's connecting with others for one particular moment. And there's a phrase, ichigo ichie, which is used in Japanese chado, you know, tea ceremony, as well as meals, which is even if you sit around a table eating with the same people, um, it's always going to be a different conversation, a different mood, the different food, and that that moment should be appreciated. So it's a form of mindfulness in a way, uh, connected through food rather than standing mm. up and rushing through a bowl of cereal in the morning or in the evening. You know, it's a, I think, a communally healthy way of, of living, of sharing. Yes, I think a lot of us look on in wonder at that Japanese sense of sort of constant connection to an intricate present is. Yes, that's, is yeah. Greatly to be admired. I think it is informed actually by the precariousness of the country with earthquakes and typhoons and, 
you know, I know that um, certainly here, floods and bushfire is such a, you know, terrible disruptor. Um, in Japan, it's earthquakes and there are 5,000 tremors a year. And there's absolutely nothing that can be done against that. And so it's a sort of acceptance of uncertainty that I think gives a certain strength and a stoicism that feeds also into Buddhism too, of acceptance. And it's just, I, I'm not under any sort of illusion that mental health in Japan is, you know, any better than mm. elsewhere. In fact, there's, you know, quite a, a record of um, bad mental health uh, situations and suicide. But I think on the whole, that sense of community and connection and sharing sort of, you know, in the face of uncertainty is a strengthening thing. Has this book taken you back close to your mum? It has, yeah. Especially because a lot of the recipes that I have interspersed between the sections are hers. And writing them down, as yes. I say, I'm a visual writer. I just saw her again in the kitchen, you know, um, putting these dishes together. And enhanced by the fact I have still owned the same dishes that she was using all those years ago. And she was a complex character, very charismatic and unusual for a Japanese woman at the time. Very funny, somewhat war traumatized as well. After the novel, I felt I understood her more, even though the character in that is not exactly my mother. But uh, the food is where I connect back with her, when I eat it especially. We're coming now into autumn. The, the, the days are growing shorter. Is, is there a recipe perhaps from your book that you would, you would recommend for this moment? Definitely the hot pot kind of dishes. Um you get more sort of fried food and rich miso sauce flavoured ramen noodles and thick udon noodles. And uh, there's plenty in there aligned with the seasons because the whole book is laid out according to the micro seasons in Japan. And so all the recipes are in keeping with the time that I write about in the section that precedes it. But I would say, yeah, go for a big steaming bowl of thick udon noodles with a rich broth. And uh, something nourishing and protein-rich on top, and uh, you'll have your own internal combustion heater <laughs> keeping you going. There you are, listener. You are thus charged to noodle up against <laughs> the chill. Catherine, thank you. Wonderful to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Catherine Tamako-Argyle, arts journalist and author, and, and the book in question, her latest, is Meshi, A Personal History of Japanese Food. You'll find that in, in shops and libraries. This is Blueprint, Radio National. Hi, it's Yumi Steins here, host of the smash hit ABC podcast, Ladies, We Need to Talk. Speaking of smashing, Ladies, We Need to Talk is about smashing taboos. Yeah, the stuff that we're afraid of because it's shameful, because it's embarrassing, because we're told it's not normal. It's going to be hot. So join me on the new steamy season of Ladies, We Need to Talk. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Paul Bangay is an internationally acclaimed leading Australian garden designer and these are his garden rudimentals. A blueprint series on the basics of garden craft. Paul Bangay, hello. Hello. We're out of the garden, come yes. out of the garden, Maud. Yes. 
we, we've come to your study, uh, which which has a superb. Uh, it's a big drawing space there for well for the, the design of gardens, I imagine. Yeah. So primarily, it is it is for the design of gardens, but I also do my all my writing of my books in here. As well, it's it's my space here at Stonefields where I can come away from the house and and get lost and all my drawings and, and writing. And it, there's a good selection here of, of books yeah. on on or about the subject of gardens. And it was the thing that struck me in our our first conversation around the idea of a garden is how much in your mind that's informed by the huge amount of work that's been done, the things that people have written, the the philosophising, the theorising, yeah. the, the documenting of gardens yeah. over time on paper. Yeah. And uh, for me, I think the whole journey with gardens started when I was a young boy and I, I went to our local library and some wise librarian had collected wonderful books written by Vita Sackville West. And so as a probably like as a 12-year-old boy, I got these books and was just mesmerised by them and just in, enthralled by them. And I think that's where it all went totally wrong for me, for well, what, me somehow. What, what lodged in your mind about her well, writing there? We had a large garden when I was growing up. It was primarily an Australian native garden. And I got these books and I started reading about Vita and um, buying her castle, her wonderful romantic castle in England, and talking about... 16th century walls that were all tumbling down, you know, they're broken and they had gaps in them, they were growing wallflowers in the gaps and it all just sounded so romantic and so completely alien to what I was exposed to and I just totally fell in love with it. Did you then set upon going as a Sissinghurst adventure? I did but it wasn't for a lot longer that I was able to go but what it did was that every Christmas I wanted a new book on Vita Sackville West you know, one of her gardening books or one of her actually writings I guess. So how would you characterise her fundamental approach? Well, she started at Long Barn first, which was a prelude to Sissinghurst, and she explored planting schemes there. But, you know, Sissinghurst is the one we, we all know about. But her husband, Nigel Nicholson, was the person who did the layout of the garden. He was the architect of the garden, if you like. So he gave it the bones. But what Vita came along and did was um, give this sort of wonderful, soft, romantic, casual, sort of relaxed planting scheme on top of Harold's very sort of geometric and sort of architectural approach to the layout. Which is a wonderful sort of yin and yang. Yeah, and it is. And it's quite a rare thing, I think, that you get a partnership like that that works. That casual planting, yeah. it's sort of anything but, isn't it? I mean, casual to look at. Is it casual to create? No, not definitely not casual to create. But she did say, though, that she didn't mind plants marching around the garden. So I think once, <laughs> once, once she had planted them and they sort of seeded themselves around, occurred in gaps in the paving or popped up in another spot, she embraced that, which I think was a wonderful thing. But I think the layout, you're right, took a lot of planning. It wasn't that sort of casual. I mean, it's interesting reading about gardening. It's one of those things where your own trial and error, your own experimentation naturally takes time. Yeah. The short-circuiting of the process that comes from dipping into somebody else's mind and experience is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think planting, which was what Vita did best, was is the hardest thing to learn. I think, you know, very easy to learn about the layout of a garden, but very, very difficult to learn about the association of plants and colours and textures and putting all those things together. 
You collect a fair bit of people's drawings and, and plannings. Yes. When I fell in love with Vita, I started collecting her books. And now I have the largest collection of first editions of, of Vita Sackville West's in the world. So I'm kind of obsessed with it. I've got two dealers, one in America and one in London, <laughs> looking out for these books for me. But on top of that, I mean, I've got nearly got all her first editions. And she was a prolific writer. She wrote, I think she wrote 30 or 40 books. It was amazing. But on top of that, I collect her letters. And I've got the own known love letter talking about their physical love between Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf. Can you believe that? That's a thing. It's a real thing. So it's a, it's a great honour to be the customer. Key lines. <laughs> I won't give away the physicality of that. <laughs> what would she make of, of your garden here, I wonder? So she learned about gardening primarily going to Hidcote. So she went over to Hidcote and learned about the notion of garden rooms. And she sort of loved the idea of garden rooms. And those rooms were already quite established by the old walls of the castle that were missing the roofs. They were just freestanding walls. So she already had the feeling of rooms. But she went over to Hidcote and really sort of uh, learnt about it there and embraced it. So I guess coming here, we do have a series of garden rooms here. Hopefully she would come out and think, well... That's kind of wonderful. He's learned from me. And, and garden rooms, I mean, that's the thing that we, we accept now and, we, yes, we understand that language quite clearly. But as you say, there was a the moment when that is, yeah. that's a big breakthrough. At that time, it was a big breakthrough. I mean, I think um, Hidka did it first and then she really sort of refined it and is well known for it. But previously, you know, it had been the capability of brown landscapes where it was just one huge, great big sort of expanse. I mean, Humphrey Repton, to a certain extent, not really created rooms because he didn't create walls so much, but he created smaller garden spaces. But it was a very novel approach to garden design back then. You mentioned that those big expanses is a little bit of a digression, but I'm always struck by the thought as we watch the sort of opulent period dramas on TV, the the, the Georgian and so forth big house with the beautifully formed garden. Yeah. If you took yourself back then, it would have been anything like that. It would have been little trees, a place just starting out. You know, we have this sort of false impression of the completeness of those gardens in that period. Well, that's right. And, of course, in Europe and in England, they're, they're very slow growing, those trees. I mean, they're much faster in Australia. We get we get a mature tree much faster. But I suppose they owned those houses for centuries. So they, at some stage, mm. they would have seen quite mature trees. And they were also very good at moving big mature trees around. Like, where they would dig up a, a massive, big, mature oak and move it. Capability Brown did that. <laughs> and, and because the climate's so much more mild, it actually lived. How many people? <laughs> I'm thinking of the, the person power. <laughs> no, I, lo I think they had lots and lots of people yes. power there. Yeah. It is a wonderful thing to think about that that sort of history of thought around a garden. Yeah, it's, it's not just a modern notion. It's This no. is an ancient thing. And we, we, we're always dipping into archives and in, in, into history to explore new ideas for gardens, or not new ideas, but reviving ideas for gardens, and I think that's kind of a wonderful thing to do. But I, I must say that what Vita did has endured. She did Sissinghurst back in the 1930s, and we're still revering it, and people are still copying it and still, you know, admiring it and, and, and um, reproducing it. Does that, I mean, 1930s, so I, I guess... You know, a hundred years on, there's a garden fully in its stride. This yeah. is this, it, it is a mature. Yeah. It, there's no reason why it should suddenly sort of have fallen apart. No, and that's a very good point. I mean, it doesn't rely on big mature trees. So mature trees die. So you know, can, you can very easily lose a landscape through natural death of those big trees. But Sissinghurst 100 years on probably looks better than it, than it ever has because it's very easy to look after. You know, everything sort of is replaceable and you don't notice it when you're replacing things.
In your process of, of, you know, thinking about a new garden, of, of thinking about a problem, I mean, all this is, you know, in, in the back of your mind, this is informs your thinking, but do you, do you sort of refer back? Do you look through? Do you cast about for ideas in other people's work? I do. I think subconsciously, I definitely do. Like, you know, I'm traveling. When when young designers come to me and ask, what's the best thing I can you can do? I say, travel. Go and see as many gardens as you possibly can. Like, go to different countries, different parts of Australia, different nurseries, and travel and see, expose yourself to as much as you can. So I think I think through travel, I definitely see lots and lots, and I draw on, on, that, on that for inspiration. I take lots of photographs. I quite often go back to all my photographs from my trips overseas and, 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 and look at plants ideas or little details I, I take a tape measure with me so it's quite bizarre you know I go with friends who are not interested in garden they turn around there I am measuring the height of a tread or the width of a gate or something and they think that's quite bizarre that is a knife for detail <laughs> it is. I always travel with a phone <laughs> with a camera and a tape measure <laughs> And writing and garden, the, the, the companionship of those two ideas is an interesting thing. I think it's a great thing. For me, it's been really rewarding because it, it's beautiful to create gardens, but it's beautiful to do something else. I mean, sometimes if you just do the same thing over and over and over again, it becomes a little monotonous. But writing is something that I really enjoy doing, but you're writing on the subject that you absolutely love, and that they go hand in hand with each other. But if you're serious about your garden too, you'll be journaling it, I guess, in some in some way. You'll be making note, maybe. I mean, well, this depends on the size of it. Well, and I and I would love to think that a lot of people do that. I mean, you know, I'm a trustee of Cruden Farm. You know, Dame Elizabeth mm. Murdoch's old place, and her gardener Michael had kept diaries for the last 45 years, and every day he'd written something in there about what they'd been doing, uh, new plants or what had died or the activities they'd been doing, and that enabled them to do a book on 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 Cruden Farm. They went through all these diaries and went and got, and got all that information and, and and wrote a book on it. But it enables you to make sense of the place too. I mean, it, it, there is so much which um, that worked there, that didn't work there. This is going well in this spot. This yeah. is what I did here in in you know in feeding or in pruning yeah. or that was different this year. Yeah. To lose track of that would be a disaster. A disaster, and and I'm really applicable when it comes to the vegetable garden. So I always write down what I you know what time I saw seeds or, or plant plants out because I quite often forget. I keep thinking, what time did the sweet peas go in? When do I put the broad beans in? But if you can go back to your journal, you can you can see. And not just exactly what, when you sowed them. Are people doing, I mean, in terms of the sort of the garden literature, I mean, are there, are people taking that in, in different and strange ways? Is it, has it got, is it, is it as sort of trend laden, do you think, as, as the gardening itself? I don't think it's as great as it was back then when Vita was writing. I mean, I think she really romantically portrayed what was happening in the garden. And, I, and, and that also inspired her fictional writings as well. But I, I don't think there's anything super exciting in, in terms of garden writing. Did it ever feel, in Vita's descriptions of what she was doing, did that ever feel intimidating? Is that, did it feel, no. oh my goodness, I'll never be able to do that? No, no, it's sounded so it was so super exciting and inspiring for me as, as a young boy it was just it was absolutely wonderful i wanted to copy everything that she that she'd done and you know growing plants like frittle areas that you know very hard to grow in australia i looked at these things and thought oh, i've never seen a frittle area what is australia? a area where can i get a frittle area and now I come up to stonefields where we've got the same sort of climate as she had in kent i'm able to grow frittle areas which is just what wonderful. what is a frittle area a frittle area is a little bulb but some 
and it comes up in the early spring and it has these little snake head like flowers and it comes up, does its flowering and then dies down and goes back down again. It's a little woodland plant and there's a great collector of frittle areas, like there's different, all different types of frittle areas. I want to see the view from your writing desk. Can we just go and yes, have a look? Of course, yeah. Getting up out of that very comfortable couch. <laughs> no, it's very comfortable. <laughs> see, I sit here and look out to, like, that, what we call this, the house field, hmm. with all those wonderful oaks that I planted. They are, and those oaks are how old now? So they'd be 18 years old, I'd say. Okay. And they're, what, 15 metres, maybe? Yeah, probably 12 to 15 metres. I mean, they start, do you think that looks like a mature tree? Or the feeling of a mature tree? Yeah, well, I, I would have said a, um, a worldly adolescent. Worldly adolescent. Well, that's good because, you know, for a long time <laughs> I planted these things and they looked so small and I thought, oh, I'm never going to see a, a, a mature garden. But I think this year I'm starting to feel yes. like the garden's maturing. Well, they've, got, they've got, you know, some weathered bark. There's some lichen on the, on the bark, which speaks to the climate here. And between that pair, the rokes that we can see through this window... This beautiful gum, which is definitely a... That is a mature tree well, of some see, centuries. See, I was blessed in having those. They're the Eucalyptus vimularis, three or four hundred-year-old trees, and I had a clump on one side of the house and another clump on the other side of the house, and they frame the garden beautifully. I mean, if it wasn't for those trees, I would not have a sense of scale in this garden. They add a lot. Oh, and just one last thing about Sissinghurst. Mm. I mean, one if, for any gardener who is passionate about holidays and gardening, you can rent the priest's house from the National Trust at Sissinghurst. I've done it twice. It is the ultimate gardening holiday you could possibly do. You live in the priest house that Vita lived in and you have 24-hour access to Sissinghurst. So you wait for all the tourists, all the, you know, the, 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 the common tourists to leave and then you can wander around the garden with a glass of wine pretending it's yours. Good Lord. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Paul Bagay and his, his garden rudimentals collected for you, of course, on the ABC Listen app. All there. We'll be back in a month's time to talk again. Bye. Bye. is an image that that sticks with you it's it's haunting in its way a, a group of men rugged up beanies gloves they're risking their lives to move a life-size statue of jesus christ arms outstretched in crucifixion into an underground bunker now the photo was taken in ukraine and it appeared in an article by freelance journalist evan rail about the destruction of ukraine's cultural heritage it's a reminder that, that cultural eradication, if, if that is the Russian aim in this invasion, some term it genocide, if that is the aim, then it involves more than the slaughter of people. The destruction of their built spiritual and, and artistic culture, that goes hand in hand. Now, Evan, Evan Rail is, is an author and journalist and writes about architecture, food, drink in Europe. He's a, he's a long-time contributor to the travel section of the New York Times. And he joins us now all the way from Prague on the doorstep uh, of, of the Ukrainian border. Evan, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. That photo, um, tell us a bit more about that, the, the, the precise circumstances. Oh, that's a removal of the, the removal of a Gothic-era sculpture of the crucified Christ from an Armenian church. 
was being taken away for safekeeping. It was last removed for safekeeping during World War II, and they had to remove it again as part of their uh, pr protective measures, precautions against the destruction that they've already seen in other parts of Ukraine. And as you say, have, have already experienced in that, in that country in the Second World War. Exactly. You know, Ukraine is a, a really interesting spot in the world for a lot of reasons. It's at a crossroads. It's it's on the Black Sea. There's been travel across the Black Sea for millennia um, through Europe and cultural ties from Ukraine to other parts of the world. So there's a lot of really interesting culture there already. But if you just look at the 20th century, what that country endured, the Holodomor, you know, basically a, a, an attempt to eradicate their culture under Stalin. And then, then the Nazis, you know, this is a country that has suffered immensely and yet which still has wonderful cultural artifacts to share with the world. There must be a strong instinct for that, those, that, those acts of, of preservation it, it's with, with that recent history. I imagine so. I see, you know, videos uh, or clips or photos on the news of, of sandbagging uh, monuments, uh, a statue to a poet will have <laughs> sandbags placed around it to protect it from blasts or, or from gunfire or from shockwaves. Uh, you see paintings being taken down. You see sandbags going up around museums or, or rather uh, libraries where they are stacking things in the windows to make sure that the blast wouldn't come through the window and blow out the glass and, and damage the artifacts mm. and books inside. It's a, a remarkable aspect to war that I think a lot of us overlook. Of course, the most important thing is the human suffering that we're seeing. You know, this is, this is affecting millions of people and, and people are being deeply hurt. Women and children and old people and uh, people of all ages are, are suffering. And on top of that, there's this, this second um, tragedy, which is that their culture is being destroyed and attacked. In a, in a vengeful way that is just almost incomprehensible. Well, a consequence of warfare, yes, but in, in particularly in, in instance like this where that sort of cultural obliteration is, is part of that military project. Oh, I mean, we've seen videos of, of Russian soldiers taking sledgehammers and uh, breaking plaques on buildings, you know, a plaque... That, uh, a historic plaque that says this thing happened here. You know, we we've seen uh, cemeteries being attacked and and blasted. You know, this is not accidental. They mm. they killed they destroyed the state archives that held the record of all of the crimes of the communist era. That is the record of all of the bad things the communist state did to ordinary people in Ukraine. That was destroyed, and those those records have been burned down. This, these are not accidents of war. Um, over 59 churches have been destroyed or damaged so far. Uh, something like four, 58 important architectural monuments have been damaged so far. This is an attempt to destroy a country's very culture. And as you say, it, it is one of those countries that is, is a crossroads, is a, is a, a meeting place of, of cultures historically, which gives such tremendous richness to... <laughs> to so much of, of Ukrainian culture. Can you, can you describe that, that heritage in, in, in shorthand to us? Oh, well, it's, it's basically a place where you can find about a thousand years of important architecture. <laughs> it's a place where you can see 10 centuries of architecture and art. It's a place where uh, there have been Greek settlements for two or 3,000 years, you know, on the other side of the Black Sea from, from Greece. 
it's uh, a place where there have been Armenians, uh, Armenian cultural center limits. It's a place where there is one of the largest Jewish communities, not just in Europe, but in the world. Um, it is a place where you can find Austro-Hungarian, grandiose, beautiful 19th century things that look like they belong in Vienna. And you can find uh, really strange wooden churches, which is what, the reason that I went there originally, um, that have been made in a kind of vernacular architectural style. That is a, an architectural style of just common people. That are these immense wooden constructions uh, with shingles all over the outside that look completely different from the gold-capped onion domes of these wonderful Byzantine and Baroque palaces. It's a, it's a remarkable place. Oh, and I didn't even get to the modern architecture of the 20th century, which is stupendous. And which, of course, it, 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 I have some extraordinary examples of, of Soviet brutalism, for example. I mean, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, there's some in the Crimea and then there's some actually in Kiev as well. There's there there are uh, buildings that are shortlisted to go on the UNESCO World Heritage Site for their grandiose modernism um, of the 1920s and 30s. You weren't able to get there during this current invasion, and, and that, that is understandable, but you have been to Ukraine before. Can you describe that trip, what you, what you saw in that, that first visit? Yeah, I went to Ukraine uh, in 2010. Uh, I live in Prague, in the Czech Republic. From here to the border with Ukraine, it's about 368 miles. So just under 370 miles. And I went there to, to write a story for the New York Times about these wooden churches. Uh, they're called Serkovas, I think, um, that are in the Carpathian Mountains. And they're built, they were built by, by common people. Um, they're sometimes quite large though, they're, you know, bordering on a basilica and um, shape and, and construction and even importance because the Carpathian Mountains are not very populated. It's a, it's a heavily forested, um, not industrialized part of Ukraine in the west of Ukraine, bordering with Slovakia and Hungary and Romania. Uh, so I went there to, to visit these churches and write about them. I drove around, I had a camera with me, uh, and I just had a remarkable experience seeing these, these buildings that are, as one person told me, like nothing else in the world. Why wood? Oh, because they're, they're in forests. <laughs> yeah, they, they build them out of wood. Um, they, there are some stories sometimes that they don't even have a single nail in them, that they're just made out of very simple construction. But they're, they're very large churches that look like dinosaurs. They're, they're made out of wood, and they're sort of boat-like if you took a boat and flipped it upside down, perhaps. And they have shingles all around the outside that look like scales. They actually resemble dinosaurs, uh, mostly, if you can imagine that. And they're hidden in these forests. So they just kind of really fit in with their environment. They're made out of wood in a woods, um, just standing there for three, four, five, six hundred years. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, isn't it, the, 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 that we are having, looking at this aspect of what is being potentially destroyed in, in Ukraine at a time when there is so much human tragedy, uh, a, a grotesque extent of human tragedy. I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult conversation and a difficult, difficult balance to strike between re revering that loss, but at the same time attempting to safeguard the, the culture for which those people fought or died or would have held dear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is secondary, of course, to the human tragedy, but this is what they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. They're fighting, you know, not just for their lives, but for their culture. So that is buildings, artworks, monuments cemeteries, uh, things that 
you normally would take for granted as existing often for centuries and lasting and and being a sort of impervious to the waves of change that come through any country. And instead, they're fighting to keep those things right now. You've been monitoring this and, and writing from, from across the border, as you say. The the flow of information, is, is word getting through about the, the safety or the destruction? Yes, I, I see a lot of people posting. I, I'm on Twitter like everyone else, <laughs> and uh, I see it on, on social media as well. Uh, but there, there are a number of uh, interesting dynamics to this that are, we didn't see in, in previous conflicts. For example, you know, the Ukrainian Cultural Foundation just created an online map of monuments that have been destroyed or damaged. That is being crowdsourced now, so people can send in photographs mm. from Ukraine to the Ukrainian Cultural Foundation to have uh, it, the map updated with new churches or, or monuments or museums or schools that have been destroyed by the invaders. Uh, that, that is something that you haven't seen before. There are uh, social media accounts that are pretty much dedicated to monitoring the cultural damage, the damage to the to the important monuments there. That is something that is entirely new, I think. Since this conflict began, one of the notable features outside of Ukraine has been the sense of solidarity that it's created across Europe and more broadly. In terms of heritage protection, are we seeing European institutions outside of Ukraine pitching in to assist? We are. We're seeing a good amount of influence coming from UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural Organization, which is very active in publicizing the importance of, of maintaining and saving these uh, artworks and cultural artifacts. We're seeing uh, cultural ministers, like the Ministry of Culture from various, uh, I think there's an open letter from or the Minister of Culture from three or four Central European countries who just wrote an important letter saying, you know, we have to preserve these documents. It is an important issue for people, for governments outside of Ukraine, as well as within it. Your sense uh, that this particular invasion against the acts of Stalin, of Hitler, of others through history, it, the, on the scale of risk, where are we standing now? I think we're at uh, 10 out of 10. <laughs> I think what we're seeing, unfortunately, and what we're hearing is that this is on the same scale as what happened under the Nazis. Um, in terms of the atrocities that are being committed, it is effectively a genocide, as we've seen. Um, and so this is this is as far as it goes. This is someone trying to erase another culture, another nation, and say that you don't exist or have the right to exist. This is as bad as it gets. I, I suspect that expressing interest and enthusiasm for that culture is, if nothing else, a, a form of... of of quiet solidarity with the people of Ukraine. <laughs> I think so. I mean, what we're seeing here is that people, you know, people are starting to develop an interest in Ukraine that they didn't have. Yes. Yeah. What it seemed like, what it seemed like happened before the war, the motive for the war was to, for, for Russia, for Putin to deny Ukraine's right to exist or the fact that it even existed as a culture to erase it as a culture to say that's not a thing. He wrote a letter saying that, no, that's just really Russia. They just talk a little bit differently. Ukrainians aren't a thing. Ukraine isn't a place other than Russia. And what we're seeing instead of erasing Ukraine or saying that Ukraine doesn't exist, we're seeing that the rest of Europe and indeed the rest of the world is discovering that they are also Ukrainians. So here in Prague, you know, a different country, almost 400 miles away. Mm. Our public 
transportation has Ukrainian flags on it now. Most buildings have Ukrainian flags on them now. And I don't mean one Ukrainian flag. I mean 40 Ukrainian flags on a single building. I mean large scale, 40 meter by 40 meter flags hanging off of our monuments, celebrating Ukraine's existence and saying, no, we too are like you and we support you. So instead of denying that Ukraine exists, it's, it's more like he's created more Ukrainians. There are Ukrainian flags flying in Switzerland and in, and in France and in Spain and countries that maybe weren't so aware of Ukrainian culture um, in the EU because Ukraine is not an EU member have become much more interested in Ukrainian culture and even identify with Ukraine. That's a real uh, an example of being hoisted by your own petard. A field of sunflowers across Europe, if you will. Over a bright blue sky. Evan, thank you. Um, an appalling time. Um, and let us hope that human tragedy is, as well as the, the cultural tragedy can quickly cease. Thank you, Jonathan. Evan Rail, author, journalist, based in Prague. Uh, now, his article on the destruction of Ukraine's cultural heritage uh, is published by the New York Times. We'll pop a link uh, to that on the Blueprint page, the RN website, and in the, in the podcast show notes. And, yeah, if you do want to do more to help, but one thing you can do, uh, search for the ABC Gives Ukraine Appeal. Those words will find it for you. We'll also pop a link up, though, on the, on the site for that as well. And this is Blueprint, Radio National. Blueprint, it's time for an icon. That means a smile, a song and a three-wheeler. It's Colin Bissett. Surely no one is fooled by a posh name given to something ordinary, like the reliant Regal, which was certainly the last vehicle you'd connect to royalty. This was a very basic car that was cheap to buy, thanks to its lack of a fourth wheel, meaning it was taxed as a motorbike, not a car. And while car buffs might be sniffy about the vehicle, it was, in its way, actually quite significant and a mark of a company that liked to defy convention. The idea of a three-wheeled car is not new. After all, the very first car with an internal combustion engine, the Benz Patentwagen of 1885, had only three. Most manufacturers went for four, but not all. Like Henry Morgan's dashing little sports car of 1910, the third wheel at the back, as it was with Buckminster Fuller's futuristic Dymaxion car of 1938. And when German aircraft manufacturer Messerschmitt was banned from making aircraft after World War II, they produced a tiny three-wheeled car that looked, with the passenger sitting behind the driver and both under a clear hinged canopy that allowed access, just like the cockpit of a plane set on wheels. Others, like BMW, had their own versions, popularly known as bubble cars accessed by a hinged front door that was a car crash nightmare. Reliant Motors was committed for much longer. Their first three-wheeler was launched in 1935, but it was little more than a motorbike with a van body grafted onto the rear. In 1952, though, the Regal was launched. 
It looked a little like a boat, with its single front wheel tucked under a tapering bonnet, with a wooden frame covered in lightweight aluminium panels. Its low price made it a surprising hit, and regular upgrades kept it viable for decades. In 1956, the increase in the price of aluminium meant that the body was now moulded entirely from fibreglass, a material that the company took to heart, making it one of Europe's biggest manufacturers. By 1973, over 110,000 regals had been produced, and the car was a regular, if not always popular, sight on British roads. The problem for many was that it looked rather like an invalid carriage, the three-wheeled single-seat vehicles that the National Health Service doled out to those with a physical disability. And despite the evidence, no one was truly convinced that three wheels were stable. Reliant even made a four-wheeled version called the Rebel alongside it. But the Regal's lower tax bracket was the decider. While it was never chic like a Mini, or sporty like a Hillman Imp, it was much cheaper. This was a vehicle for the masses, helping a post-war recovery. Oddly, while Reliance bread and butter was the Regal, in the 1960s it also developed a stylish coupe called the Scimitar, which had a sleek hatchback body made from fibreglass, meaning that Reliant produced at the same time one of Britain's most desirable cars, as well as one of its least. Princess Anne's love for the Scimitar, she had nine, at last added a proper royal link to the Reliant name. The Regal was replaced in 1973 by the Robin, which amazingly bowled along for another 30 years. In Italy, Piaggio launched a tiny three-wheeler truck in 1948 based on the Vespa scooter and known as the Ape or B. It was the basis for the tuk-tuk taxis that would rule the streets of South Asian countries. But their motorcycle heritage was never hidden. The Regal, on the other hand, was most definitely a car, messing with everyone's preconception of what a car should look like. And for that alone, it should be crowned. Regal, after all. Colin, thank you. All Colin's icons gathered for you at the ABC Listen app, which is where you'll find all the things we do for your, your constant listening pleasure. Uh, we'll be back same time next week. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.